you know, except you become as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I think the works of children sometimes lead us uh, into some profound understanding of the Lord. And recently, we had the privilege of taking our children to go watch Christopher Robin, uh, which is, you know, the story I'm sure many of you are familiar with of uh, Winnie the Pooh. And uh, it's a really good film. But one one comment just uh, stuck out in that film that really spoke to me, and I'm sure that it was probably the main, I would say, theme behind that film. And uh, Winnie the Pooh makes this statement. He says, doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. And that certainly flies in the face of a lot of of uh, American ideological uh, rugged individualism and the way that we uh, think about ourselves we, we would certainly many people would say that doing nothing leads to more nothing uh, but what I believe that that we can find this also in scripture so uh, we're not basing what we our whole ideological perspective off of Winnie the Pooh. I wouldn't highly recommend that, but listen to this in John chapter five, verses nineteen through twenty-three. So Jesus answered them and says, "I tell you uh, the solemn truth." And um, you know, when you're speaking in solemnity, um, you are saying. I really want to get to the crux of a matter and get you to understand something. And, of course, we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So if the Lord tells us this, then we we can be assured that what he's about to say here is uh, profoundly relevant for our everyday living. Listen to what he says. The Son can do nothing on his own initiative but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he does and will show him greater deeds than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. Furthermore, the Father does not judge anyone, but has assigned all judgment to the Son, so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Just a couple little things here going back off of this ideological perspective that's going through Christopher Robin, doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. We can see here in Scripture that Jesus is saying the Son can do nothing unless he sees what the Father is doing. So the very best of somethings in our life would have to come out of the realm of seeing what the Father is doing. And I I think that you can see that here. Job said something very interesting, and at the end of his trials, you know, he had went through uh, the initiation that he goes in. He's initiated by the Lord. Have you considered my servant Job to the Satan, which means the accuser, who was before the divine council? And then Job, you know, is divested of his wealth, his health, and his children, his household, and. Uh, then he has his three friends come, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, to throw out their retributive justice ideological perspective onto him. He basically explains to them uh, that, that he is not being punished uh, because he deserves there's some kind of retribution against him. And then we find out that Job is being cured by the Lord of his deeper iniquitous patterns. He claims his own righteousness. Elihu comes on the scene, proclaims a God-centered perspective over Job. And then God himself speaks to Job and runs him through two cycles of, of uh, court sessions, asking him a series of questions that Job cannot answer. And then at the end of this, Job is sort of left in his 
state with this comment in in forty two six, and I think it's very profound. And he said, "I abhor myself. I repent." Uh, Job's in dust and ashes, not the kind of place most of us want to be. And he says in this concept here, he says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Okay, and then he says, I pour myself, repent in dust and ashes. And then the father, you know, restores him after he prays for his three friends, makes an offering. He's blessed, placed back into his financials, uh, given new children, uh, new household environment. But this was very crucial that Job moves from a hearing about God to a seeing. And this is the subject matter of the day as we uh, unpack this podcast for you. Now, I want to put this before you, and I believe you find this in Scripture, that it said, Jesus said, my sheep, what? Hear my voice. Proverbs 25.2 says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of a king to hear it out. Now, I want to put this postulate before you that sheep may hear, but kings must see. And I want to work off this because we're seeing that sonship related to kingship and a relationship with a father must be in the realm of seeing. That if we're going to go on to maturity, that we can't just hear about him and hear things about him in the house of the Lord, which is fine. But we must move into a place where we can see. And that our eyes can be illuminated by the Spirit to see the Lord at work in the connotation realm or a realm around us. And we start to see what He is doing uh, based in Scripture. Now, I've said this many times, but in Hebrews 11, you know, faith is defined as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. I went into the Greek and looked at this a little bit in more detail, and a better translation would be, faith is the title deed hoped for, the objective proof of an unseen reality. So it's important that we come into a seeing of by receiving objective proof before we could ever even have any way to know what the Father is revealing to us. And and so uh, that's what we're going to look at today is how do we make a transition from hearing, uh, which is vital and necessary that we hear, but we also see. I uh, was, as often has been my case, in a relationship with the Lord prompted to watch a film called The Next Three Days and it's a it's a drama like a thriller and it's a story about a, a man named John Brennan and his wife Laura uh, is played by Russell Crowe and Elizabeth Banks and she had been convicted, convicted of murder uh, that she didn't commit and so he spends uh, three years trying to struggle with the demands of work and raising th- their son and while trying to establish her innocence. When her appeal is rejected, Laura becomes uh, suicidal and forces John to exercise the only option he has left, and that was to break her out of prison. And one of the interesting features of the film, and I'm and just spoiler alert because, you know, I'm going to talk about this film just a little bit was he meets a, a man in the film who was played by Liam Neeson who has actually literally broke out of uh, prison a number of times and he's going to uh, tell him, uh, Mr. Brennan, that it is imperative that he finds the key, that he finds a key of how to break her out of prison and that it shares with him that there's a there's a weakness in the system, but it's going to require Mr. Brennan, uh, Russell Crowe's study in the system that is around her uh, to get to liberate her from her captivity. And um, let me just say this: I am not advocating 
for anyone listening to this to go breaking people out of prison, nor do I advocate that. Anyways, the point of the film for me was is there's a key that's involved in digging beneath the connotation of what is observed on the surface and being able to find what that is and see into a deeper aspect of life that can liberate or bring liberation and that many of us are living our life day to day but you know we're certainly not coming into maybe the liberty that we would like to walk in so I I saw this film and um, I have been going through a season of my life of uh, preparation really for this ministry and we had stopped our our meetings on March the 3rd that we were having and so it placed uh, Kara and I in a sort of a, a predicament financially and so I, I was looking at different career options. I, I hold a pilot's license. I hold a general contractor's license. I hold an insurance license. And um, I have these different licenses. And I was thinking, well, I could get into some work and things. And, and then I was looking at also those career options. And I have a background in aviation management, maintenance. Uh, I've got a number of degrees and that I could work off of. And I also was looking at you know my background in uh, blue collar fields and jobs and I just could not get a piece about how to take care of my family and so one day I believe it was on May 16th of 2019 I just decided I was just going to proverbially or just chuck everything into the trash can and say I'm not going to pursue anything other than what I see my father doing well a friend of mine uh, Kevin Barnes had been attempting to want to get together because he was being led by the word for us to get together and uh, we had already ran into each other not trying to get together at the car wash in Arden and uh, he was listening to the podcast at the moment that we ran into each other and that was interesting because we hadn't been pursuing a relationship in a number of years and and this morning on May the 17th, uh, I'd had a real dramatic breakthrough with the Lord. And I told Kara, I said, something today is going to happen that's very significant. I just had this sense. And uh, right when I'm telling her this, Kevin Barnes is, I think he was probably less than 100 yards away from my position and said, I feel like, that. can we get together, Carol? And uh, here we are in the same spot again in the same parking lot and don't even know it. And we realize that it's time to have another meeting. We go into this meeting, and uh, I laid out for him all of these analytics and ideas that I have and drew, drew it all on a page, and, and uh, we have this amazing connection that happens between us. And, and, you know, mind you, I've been dealing with all this pressure, and I've just said, you know what, I'm going to just give this over because I have become an observer of that which is what I see the Father doing, and in part of myself, because of pressure, I have been trying to find uh, a different way out of my connotation and observation of what I see. Now, I'm going to tell you, when you get into a life with the Father, you literally can do nothing except what you see Him doing. So just uh, understand that, uh, because I had got into this life with Him, and you get grace when you do what you see him doing but if you try to go do your own thing there's no grace and so i feel really stuck like i want to protect provide bring get this some direction for my family and i couldn't so i'm in this moment and i'm proclaiming i go in there i proclaim the gospel to him and my belief in the gospel and uh, you know he looks at me and he says you know I, i've been wanting to tell you this I think that you have this uncanny ability to help people understand who they are. And you can like, you could help people with this and you could get into to something that would, would help people to unpack themselves. And um, I told him this story and I wanted to share with you this story because I felt like that was significant in this moment. When I was, let's see, I guess I left home when I was 18 years of age and I went into the Air Force, and the Air Force assigned me a job as a F-15 Strike Eagle. It was an E-model, electrical and environmental system specialist. I, I went down and was trained at uh, Shepard Air Force Base after going to basic training. 
Uh, it took about six months of being trained in electric, electrical systems, environmental systems, and then they sent me to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And uh, I came into my position there. I joined. I was uh, placed in the 333rd Lancer Squadron uh, as a. I think I was a. At that point, I was an Airman First Class, which was an E2, and I was placed under uh, the care of Staff Sergeant Robert Jennings, and he was going to train me and in electrical and environmental systems. And and what our job was is to basically troubleshoot any electrical malfunctions on the F-15E and fix and repair and restore that aircraft. And then we also dealt with environmental systems, which included like uh, oxygen, um, air conditioning, heating, and various other systems on that airplane. Now, electrics and environmental gets tied up with a lot of other different systems, uh, like weapon systems, and they got tied into the engine systems and neutrolics and the mechanical systems of the aircraft is uh, the avionics systems and so we were sort of like this we were in a specialist shop there and and so we would get tied in with all the other shops because our electrics goes throughout the whole aircraft I loved it I loved my job and uh, I really liked to work and anyways while I was there I later on got placed in the 335th squadron which was the chiefs and got to travel overseas and went all over the, the world uh, went to Doha Qatar Riyadh Saudi Arabia went to Denmark I later on would go to Germany uh, the Azores Portugal uh, got to see the world not really enjoying that and but one thing the Air Force does and I, th- I don't know about other branches I think they're the same but they give you 30 days paid vacation a year and uh, I was so involved in my work that I think for a couple years I didn't even take a day off. I just worked, work, work. Loved to work, loved to troubleshoot, loved to fix aircraft, and uh, loved to travel. I was enjoying it. And they said uh, they had they, a policy came out that said if you don't take your leave, you lose it. It was called use it or lose it. And so I was like, well, I'm going to take my, my time off because I'm not going to lose paid vacation. And so... I had been gone for a month and left my post there in the 335th, and I was in my last leg of my four-year commitment. This was in 1998. Now I was on, on my last leg there, and I was going to finish up. I had plans to go to college, and I was getting my bachelor's degree at the time in uh, aeronautics, and then I, later what's going to happen is I'm going to end up getting selected to become a weapon system officer in the F-15 Strike Eagle, the very aircraft that I've been working on. Later on, I'm, I'm going to go from an enlisted position to an officer position to, to fly the aircraft, the same exact aircraft. And um, well, I was so excited about that. And at this point, I didn't know that. But I, So anyways, I've been on leave, and I come back to work. And what, what happens, we run 24-hour shifts, 8-hour shifts, seven days a week and uh, I was coming into my own my shift I think I was on a swing shift which was in the evening I think we were you know somewhere around three or something to uh, 11 o'clock and I was coming to my own my shift and they, they we have log books and they turn over the problems that we're dealing with with the different aircraft and they said uh, Airman Moffat uh, we've had a problem with this aircraft and and I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, we've got it over there in the hangar. It's on jacks, and uh, we can't seem to get the landing gear to cycle, And meaning that the, the landing gear would come up into the aircraft, you know, like when it takes off, and the cyclical, it's having a cyclical problem. And uh, we've been working on it for a month, and all, our, all the electricians, even electricians from other squadrons have been coming in, and uh, even now we've got, I believe we had, that aircraft was under McDonnell Douglas at the time. The engineers from McDonnell Douglas have been down here working on it. I got to just tell you, I was a cocky son of a gun. And at that time, I was very arrogant about my ability. Because for some reason, I had some kind of uncanny ability to troubleshoot problems and figure them out in all kinds of different areas. And so I, I, uh, I said to them, I said, I'll have this fixed in 30 minutes. And the guy looked at me and sort of rolled his eyes and said, just kind of like, 
got irritated with me and it kind of looked at me like cross-eyed and like who do you think you are and I said well you know you know we'll just see what happens here so I, I went in and um, our, we have these systems books on different aspects of that aircraft I don't remember if there are 22 of them or something like that it's been it's been over you know it's been a while and uh, books are about three to four inches thick of big schematics and everything and I unpacked them and, and I just looked at it and I don't know how I know this and I, now I would just give thanks to, to the Lord because it's something that he just gave to me and I was able to perceive how power could set up from another system and set up a holding circuit in a relay and cause power to generate across that relay which would hinder the movement of the landing gear from another system that was not in the book and so I isolated it down and I found two wires exactly what I thought it was and they had rubbed together from chafing and two power wires had crossed up and one was sending a signal to a relay that was from another system and uh, I took the wire bundle apart repaired the wiring put it back together uh, cut the wires out put them in our logbook told those engineers to stay up there and eat their donuts and drink their coffee that we that let the real men do the work and uh, thankfully that was my last week in the Air Force because apparently I made a lot of people very mad but the aircraft was trouble shot within 30 minutes and it was repaired and fixed and I had a lot of experiences like that and um, that it happened to me over the years and I, I suppose now I would say you know I was under an anointing to troubleshoot malfunctions well back in the meeting here we are May 17 2019 I'm still in this place of who am I how can I help my family how can I help other people and Kevin's looking at me and he said you know I tell him the story and he says to me what he did what I mentioned a minute ago and I looked at him and I said you know what I know what this is this is something that's called a chrysalis the Lord years ago had shown me it like a my own vision of myself and I stand before governmental leaders and education leaders and business leaders and I was talking to them about how to get transformation breakthrough within their industry their their world of business and the world of government and I was teaching them on a breakthrough and how to get to the next level in their human development how to impact their organizations and so I I told Kevin this and I call Kevin Q and recently we were talking about this like Q from the Q branch out of the 007 series and I because Q this Q Kevin he knows how to ask all the right questions if you need someone to ask you a question that that would be the right one I think he's really gifted in this both in a quantitative level and a qualitative level and so I talk in the Q and I said yeah you know I'm gonna look up what chrysalis means so I look it up and it comes from the 17th century word in the Greek, what means Crusos. It means gold. Now, you have to understand this because this had come out of a series of conversations that I'd had with the Lord because he had been talking to me about uh, blue collar and white collar and also blue as it relates to uh, the Democratic Party and red as it relates to the Republican Party. And he had said, you know, and you can listen to this in Rubin's Restoration, but he, he had spoke to me and said, you know, why the blue and the red when you can have the purple? You guys are a royal, you're a part of the royal family. Uh, why can't you just have the best of being blessed and being a blessing? And I said, well, that's an interesting way to put it. And then, you know, he said, you know, instead of feeling bad and getting in these conversations about blue and white collar, why wouldn't you want to have the silver and the gold? You can have refinement as silver and be purified as gold as my people. And you don't need to get caught up in all this conflictedness related to social class and cultural classes and things like that. You can rise above it. And I've been thinking about this. And so when we looked at the word chrysalis, and I didn't know this even at the point on May 17th that it meant gold, I thought, isn't that interesting? This chrysalis 
whatever it may be, is a place of transformation that is post-redemption. I mean silver. It's not based in class distinction, cultural distinction, color distinctions. It's not based in that. It's, it's based in another dimensional aspect of life. And that because of the silver, which is a picture of redemption, you can bring people through the gold to see them uh, transform to become who they really are in you, Lord. And I mean, so we're working all this out, and I'm like, man, I can't think of anything better than maybe you would want to give your life to than to see the transformation of uh, other people. And, you know, Kevin goes on to tell me that men in the corporate dimension are looking for someone that can do this for them and basically help them and women help them understand how to get breakthrough in their organizations. And uh, it's called consulting. Went on to tell me, you know, some paying five minutes, sit down, consulting fees up to $10,000. So I'm sitting there thinking about that and I looked up more into the chrysalis and I just want to read this to you. A chrysalis is a form a caterpillar takes before it emerges from its cocoon as a fully formed moth or butterfly. The chrysalis has hard skin that's left behind after the caterpillar sheds its soft outer skin. So, in effect, what happens is, beside forming itself into a chrysalis, a caterpillar is able to spend a kind of sticky silk for attaching itself to a branch or a leaf. It's often a gold-colored chrysalis that stays attached while undergoing a further transformation toward becoming a butterfly. Chrysalis, again, comes from this Greek word, chrysalis, which is the golden pupa of the butterfly, from chrysos, which means gold. I thought, you know, huh, we receiving something here from the Lord about transformation and how to move from one aspect. Here, here you've got a caterpillar who goes into this silky, cocoon, golden chrysalis and now becomes something completely that it wasn't before. Now you got this beautiful butterfly. You go over this green, slimy-looking thing that nobody really likes to this beautiful butterfly that has all these different dimensions of color. And How did that transformation take place? And so we left that meeting, and interestingly enough, I'm prompted again to watch a film. Now, this was kind of uncanny to me because I had just seen the next three days and realized that there's a golden key to unlock for the purpose of freedom uh, Mr. Brennan's wife uh, from prison because of her innocency. And that that golden key was needed. And then I had this meeting. It's on the chrysalis. And I, I realized, huh, the Lord, I think, is showing me something here in the deeper connotation of what it means to unlock individuals and other people from a, one state, see them transformed into another state. Uh, from caterpillar to butterfly. And there's a transformation key that he is literally laying into my hands. And so then I'm prompted to watch another film. In saying these films that, that I've seen, I'm not also advocating for these films for you to see them. I, I am simply telling you a story. And so the next film that I watch is Three Days of the Condor. Now notice the first one was the next three days then the chrysalis comes, then three days of the condor. And so I don't know if this kind of starts to occur to you, but there was one awesome man, the most awesome quintessential man, who died, on, was buried, and was resurrected in how many days? Three. And so you talk about a transformation. What the grave, death, hell, and the grave looked like it could keep him down not hold him down and and so I'm in the middle of this realizing that this three day motif is entering in and there's this chrysalis in, in here and that um, the Lord is speaking to me because he has something in the dimension of seeing that's beyond the dimension of hearing and I believe that he wants to help people transform from a life of death and burial 
to a place of resurrection and ascension. And that he's going to, sounds like he's given something here to uh, help aid that. And so um, Three Days of the Condor was a Sidney Pollock spy thriller. Involves a, a freelance a, assassin, Gervais. And it's a very interesting film. And um, I'm going to put up a link for you if you want to uh, read this. It's uh, some research that was done at Yale University. It's in something called uh, Post 45. I'll give you the link if you want to go in and read about this because this film, you can't just watch it and just take it like it is. There's so much depth behind it that uh, it takes a researcher and a thoughtful person to get into the ideology that is being presented by uh, Sidney Pollack. And it deals in uh, information theory and the remaking of a professional ideology. Now, I'm just going to read you just a couple of things that are said in this and it extract out something I, I believe that the Word wanted me to extract out from it concerning information theory and communication. Uh, in this, Abigail Cheever, she writes that this assassin, Jovet, was explaining to his client his difficulty in locating the CIA researcher codenamed Condor, who in the film is played by Robert Redford, who went on the run after Jovet had murdered his entire unit in the early moment of the film. Jovet explains that Condor is an amateur. He's lost, unpredictable, perhaps he's even sentimental. He could fool a professional, but he doesn't do it deliberately. He does it precisely because he is lost. He doesn't know what to do. Now, I just want to capture this because what Gervais, who is a professional assassin, is saying about Robert Raffer, whose code name is Condor, is that he doesn't know what to do. And I hope it'll take you back to the beginning of this podcast that Jesus is saying the Son can do nothing except what he sees the Father doing. And in this film, you're going to, if you were to watch it, and I'm, again, I'm not suggesting that you do because I'm basically spoiling the film for you, and some of you may have already seen it, but the point is is that the professional assassin is saying that what's going to happen in the film, Robert Refford Condor is going to end up outsmarting the whole CIA both from both sides of the professional class and the assassin class and everybody that's involved from every dimension and walk, he's going to be able to outdo them because he doesn't know what to do. And he has this uncanny ability to figure things out. Now, in the film, Condor is like this uh, analyst. He's a, he works with the CIA, but he's an analyst. And what he's doing is... He's feeding in plot narratives into a computer. And what he does is he basically reads books all day. And he finds these expert plots that people could do things, and they come up with these plot narratives. And if a plot comes out that, or a narrative that the CIA can utilize, they'll use a plot narrative that's coming from uh, these writings through the computer to understand the mechanism of the villains. And what ends up happening with Condor is he ends up finding a plot narrative out that's the exact one that the CIA is involved in. So because he finds that out and figures that out, now his whole entire team is going to be murdered, and he himself was supposed to be, but he somehow escapes, is going to be murdered because he had figured out what the government was doing that was actually corrupt. And so he goes on this journey of being chased, you know, and that's the film. And so um, here is Jovet saying, as a professional, that Condor is an amateur and that because he doesn't know what to do. But he says uh, the amateur, according to Jovet, is lost in the world of covert operations. He doesn't know what to do, but this ignorance has brought with it unexpected benefits. He's unschooled in the practice of spycraft because, uh, remember, Condor is an analyst. He's not an operations guy. And in the CIA, you'll have, you'll have all the smart guys kind of like sitting behind computer desks and everything. And then you'll have 
another section of the CIA, they're actually the, the guys that go on operational, go into operations. So you got the the guy behind his desk, and then you got the guy out in the field. And so Condor wasn't a guy out in the field, but he's really good at studying and reading books. And so he uh, he says that. He's lost in the world of covert operations. He doesn't know what to do, but this is brought this ignorance has brought unexpected benefits. Condor avoids becoming, in Jove's words, predictable. This unpredictability ends up saving his life during Jove's original assault on his unit. Condor has broken regulations, snuck out the back door to go to lunch, which he wasn't allowed to do. And it provides him with his canniest solutions in the moments when Jovey keeps getting too close. To quote Bernard Bledstein, a historian writing the year after Condor's release, a professional person such as Jovey grasped the concept behind a functional activity, allowing him both to perceive and predict those unseen. Listen now, Condor is able to, to perceive and predict, excuse me, Jovey is able to perceive and predict those unseen variables which determine an entire system. But in the three days of the condor, it's suggesting that the amateur's ignorance of those variables provides him with a certain freedom of action. The amateur might not make an educated decision, but neither will he make an obvious one. And so, listen, a lot of us, we don't really like that kind of uh, feeling of not knowing of the unknown or feeling like we don't know anything. It was so funny because my little boy, Leander, he's four years old. We're sitting in a car one day and he says, Daddy, you don't know anything. And, and you know, for the first time, I think, in my life, after thinking for so many years, I knew so much. I, I said, you know what, son, you're exactly right. That is the absolute truth coming from my little four-year-old's boy. I don't know anything. And I think that what you find with that and is uh, that starts to happen in your life is people that are know-it-alls or know something about everything, that there's a professional class of those people that really do know things like Jovet, and then there's this whole class of people who I would call ignorant, who think they know everything, and then when they start talking, you realize they don't know anything. And I think you've probably met those, and we would call that foolishness. But it's the person who keeps on talking about what they do not know, acting like they do know what they know. And if anybody was to get around them that was a professional and listen to them for more than five seconds, it'd drive them absolutely crazy. I don't know if that's happened to you, because in your particular fields of expertise and things, have you ever met somebody that just goes on about some kind of nonsense and and you're like, they don't know a bit what they're talking about and you don't want to listen to them anymore? You might be raising your hand or thinking of someone right now. Don't think on this too much. Because the thing is, is there are a professional class of people that really know their deal really well, like Chauvet. And then there's this ignorance that's just pervasive. But then there's this other class of human aspect that I want to talk about that says I can do nothing except what I see my father doing. You see the difference between professionalism and a certain amount of ignorance and then what we're saying here about the one who does nothing now I don't think any of you would think this for one minute that Jesus himself is uh, ignorant that he doesn't really understand what's going on now if this man Jesus says I can do nothing except what I see my father doing I just I hope you're just kind of hearing from this, that that is probably the best place for you and I to hang out at. So the unknown, a lot of the unknown, feels anxiety in our life because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Matthew's gospel is going to speak of this. Don't give thought to tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry for itself. Focus on today. And so people that live in the past or into the future too much and they don't live for right now are actually missing something. Why? Because the future 
for many people is built out of a shame-based conscience and the past is built out of a guilt-based conscience. That's why you need to enjoy the now that you're living in. But you've got to enjoy the now that you're living in in the context of I do nothing except what I see my father doing. And uh, this is this is a profound shift that needs to happen inside of people. There'll be a podcast on this. It'll be called uh, Blank Slate. And I'm going to really unpack this and dig into what a blank slate mentality is about in another podcast. Now, as we dig out what's really happening here and uh, in the uh, the work on Condor with about Condor, we start to define something that artificial intelligence today is something like because what Condor is doing is he's feeding plot narratives into a computer and that it can only that computer system or like artificial intelligence can only go so far because it can never move out into the area of thinking outside of or moving and doing things outside of what has already previously been constructed and Professionals have to work within a constructive framework of thinking, but what's going on here is is that the machine is going to just come back and rephrase or express the words that are already being placed into it. So what comes out out in this is something I want to start to break down for us is something that Claude Shannon came up with. He did this communication theory of secret systems and I just want to read a little section of this is Claude Shannon might have had had he been in the spy novel business been into uh, understanding what was coming out here in the uh, three days of the condor uh, because it said I just read books everything that's published in the world and we're feeding the plots and dirty tricks codes into a computer and then the computer is checking it against the actual CIA plans and operation. I'm looking for leaks. I'm looking for new ideas. We read adventures, novels, and journals. Who would invent a job like that? And Shannon had come up with this and this ability to conceptualize through this mathematical theory of communication and secrecy systems uh, how to work through thought of an analyst. He observed from the point of view of the analyst, a secrecy system is almost identical with a noisy communication system. And so he, he puts together this somatic, schematic diagram to reveal the similarities. So I, I'm just going to try to describe for you this block diagram, and I'll give you a link to it so that you can look at it yourself. But what happens in his block diagram is you have a message source who receives a message and it goes through an encipher and it goes through the encipher and then it's deciphered and a message comes out now that's what's that really is what happens to you every day a message comes to you you have all these different environmental ideas like even you're listening to this message right now and you're putting pieces together and it's running through an encipher code that's been formed some people call it like a filter on your mind but you have many filters and layers of perspective that are laid inside of your subconscious your conscious reality that's been formed through through your life and so when that message comes to you it runs through that whole encipher code and then it forms like a cryptogram it forms a an understanding and then you take that understanding and you decipher it and so because you've got to take it from the revelation now through an interpretation and then it comes out through you as deciphered as how I'm going to apply the information that I've just heard now what Shannon found out is there's an enemy to analyst that can enter in between your encipher and your decipher and uh, that can observe the way that you are taking your revelation your interpretation and how you're applying it and can observe that and quantify that, compute it, and figure out sort of what you're going to do based off of what you've already done before. And this is very much how they do personality profiling and everything and watch people and can lay out a whole framework of certain personality types and how that they'll act in certain situations. Most of our like Secret Service departments 
they're very good at what we're talking about right now. Now, because they, they have to study espionage and they're studying counter-espionage, they're studying the way people think and the way they'll act from what their thoughts are. Now, here's the key, because the enemy may be able to come in and determine what your next action will be. Now, here's the difference, though, in this code is in the Encipher section, after you receive a message, this would be the interpretation. He puts in this other block he calls the key source. And this is the part I really want to highlight because people, generally speaking, are highly predictable. And if you put in this certain thing happens to them, this is what they're going to do. And even if their predictability is based in their own uh, previous history, socioeconomic background, personality types, you can pretty much predict their next action based off the previous action. But here's what makes what I'm wanting to get at today called the chrysalis different. The chrysalis, what it does is it allows you to have a key source that changes up the encipher code or your interpretation. And who is that key source? That key source is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I do nothing except what I see the Father doing. So he's able to take an experience that he's going through and he's able to check it against the key source, which would be his father and his relationship to his father and see another aspect so that now the key source being the father is going to uh, interpret his encipher so that his application may look completely different. Let me give you a good example in scripture. Jesus comes upon this man who's blind and when he sees him, he tells the man, a man wants him to heal him. And Jesus tells the man, he said, I tell you what, we'll take this uh, mud and this dirt and we want you to put it into your eyes. And when you do, you'll be able to see. Now, I want to just ask you a question. Do you think it's good to put mud and dirt into your eye? I think that you would say, as well as I would, no. Now, Jesus has to be operating out of a different aspect or different realm to tell a man the way that you're going to get your eyes healed is to put mud or uh, dirt into your eyes. Jesus often is going to make decisions like this. Like, for instance, take another instance where he has five loaves and two fishes brought to him and all these people want to be fed because they want to stay and hear the message and listen to more of what he has to say. And he takes them, lifts them up to the Father. He's looking up into the heavens. It says he looked up. And then all of a sudden, it's approximately probably 20,000 people are fed. Why? Because he has a key source. He's looking up to see what his Father's doing. And the Father is dropping something in that gives him power to cause a multiplication of food. What has happened to so many of us is we've been disconnected from the chrysalis. We've been disconnected from the connotation. We've been disconnected from seeing the Father and what He's doing. And so we run into these situations and we handle them based off of our historical background, cultural background, um, environmental influences, history of education. And all of those things are fine and, and they may be proper for us, but without a key source... Without seeing what the Father is doing, you are not, and I am not going to see transformation in our life. Without the chrysalis, the place of the gold that's, that's come into a dimension of being refined through redemption, our vision is skewed. And it can only keep repeating the same things that we have done over and over, or maybe someone else tells us that we should do. So we go and we get uh, different aspects. How do I deal with this situation? But there's no real dynamic breakthrough. And we need so bad not to just hear about him, like Job, but we need to see him. We need our eyes illuminated, I believe it says in the Psalms, lest we sleep the sleep of death. We need an illumination to come to our ability to see and perceive God at work in our life. And we need a chrysalis. Now, I want to continue further in this to dig into this what is this it's to get beyond and I'm, I'm going to maybe say some big words here and uh, hopefully you can 
deal with them and maybe study, but it's it's to get a a diamond-like vision to open up the aperture of your eye that is beyond the tree of knowledge of good and evil to partake of the tree of life that's not based in a technocratic ideal meaning that a governmental uh, controlling thing that is based just in technology that you're able to start to have your the realm of your imagination and your relationship with the Father opened up so that you can take abstract aspects of Him uh, working with you and speaking to you and you can bring them into something that is uh, quantifiable that is beyond uh, our, even our linguistic or our own language that we can come into a communication with Him um, I believe this is what happened at Pentecost that sound and light came into the room and it caused this change of perspective. I mean, Peter goes out and preaches and he's, I mean, 3,000 people convert and they all hear him in uh, their own tongue. I think there were possibly 16 different dialects there. Um, He's transmitting what I'm saying out of a a realm of what I like to call the chrysalis because he's come through a chrysalis and come through a transformative uh, relationship with the Father and, and all of them have been touched by love. That we've got to get beyond what's being propagated in our bureaucracy and uh, all this technology and information technology and artificial intelligence that really is seeking to enslave us into some kind of ideology that's mechanized instead of relational. And that we don't see any kind of real compensatory results that comes from that because it's not dynamic. It's, it really is as uh, deep as artificial intelligence can go and information technology can go and that's happening in our world. It still is completely limited from what you can gain from a relationship with the Father. And it's so necessary today that you and I not just here sheep hear his voice but that we see what the father is doing and so we can go to to a place of analysis at the very end one of the cia guys who's going to say about condor he said you play games i told them in the story and the difference between playing a game and telling a story is the extenuation of the difference between the professional and the amateur the difference between a limited choice within an established structure and a move and an unlimited choice that constructs a new one between an opportunity to establish mastery and listen to this, an opportunity to create meaning. What's the difference here with relationship with the father and artificial intelligence? One is trying to establish mastery, but the other one is establishing meaning. Listen, I've got another podcast, and I, I really want you to listen to it that we did, the podcast Genesis Zero. I really would like for you to listen to that because the whole understanding of it is about creating meaning in your life instead of like what we're hearing here, trying to establish mastery. You, I mean, you can go get all the PhDs and that you want, want in, in establishing mastery, and I'm not against them. You can. My son Manasseh was going through this this morning these five aspects of humanity, social sciences, natural sciences, formal sciences, applied sciences, you can get into all those different academic disciplines, but there's something that goes beyond all the scientific disciplines of our age. Is there a relationship established in meaning with the Father where you see that you can relate with Him? And this is absolutely necessary. And it will be necessary, especially as the days go forward, so what do we have here? We have a chrysalis, uh, a place where you can enter into dissecting a field of two interconnected planes of existence. It's, it's not a question of, of being either in and out of these fields. It's a rather a question of, of a level of degree of involvement. It's an acute awareness of corporal parameters. It's a strong sense of what cannot be seen and what the mortal perception cannot fathom, it's the plane of immortality. You've got to, and I've got to, move beyond the purely 
denotive aspects, we've got to move into what Roland Barthes called the literal or first order meanings and go beyond that to the connotations. We've got to go to the second order signifieds uh, that have a very close communication with cultural knowledge and history and go beyond that. The codes of connotation, Barth explains, are neither natural nor artificial, but historical or even preferred or cultural. What am I saying here is there's a place in the fathers beyond our culture and our history, artificial intelligence, natural things that's beyond the surface symbols and their connotations. It's a relationship with the father in seeing and doing what he is doing. Why is this important? I mean, Matthew chapter 7 says that people are going to come up to the Lord and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And we cast out devils. We did signs and wonders. We executed scripture properly. And he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I wasn't on intimate terms with you in your life. You were doing things for me, but you weren't doing what you saw me doing. And um, this is really serious. I mean, I, I'm dealing with your soul right here because that's this is an eternal perspective based in this podcast is to get you to consider and think through your life about what the way you're living, the way you're leading your life. Now, uh, something that and I just want to move into an application kind of facet here because of, of this, and we've been through a lot, and please take more time to listen to this and and think about how you could implement this in your life. But something that we're going to offer as the collider comes online um, with the chrysalis is I've been asking the Lord how to bring people through this chrysalis and and to build a staff and a team that can bring other people through it. And I want to just give you a, a mechanism that we're going to uh, that we're building upon. I'm, this is brand new for me, so it, this may be adjusted, but I'm going to go ahead and give some of this. And so, for instance, um, in the chrysalis, we would invite people to come in uh, to it voluntarily. It, you would come in and sit with a staff. It's kind of like going to see a medical doctor, and uh, you would be put through an evaluation. Again, it's voluntary, and a, a write-up would be given to you, basically a consult of your life. And what I'm wanting to do is I'm wanting to offer a review of your life to help you to know who you are. And I'm wanting our ministry to do this. I think that so many times in ministry, people are coming into the churches, but they're still lost with having no meaning. They're not connecting with others. And you're still asking questions like many of you are. Again, go listen to Genesis 0. What is the meaning and purpose of my life? Why am I here? What is my significance? What is my contribution? And I, I really believe that, and the Lord has put this upon my heart, that, that we want to help you understand that. And I would like those of you that want to come through this, that you would be able to. And I've got this from the Lord, and I want to share this with you for a human development purposes within the chrysalis. One of the first things that we're going to do is, is bring you through this, and then you'd sit down, and this would be the way we consult. We put you through something called ethmo, which is a word that comes from etymology, and ask you to give your first name and middle name and last name. And then what we would do is do some research right there for you and give you your name meanings. Uh, The next thing we do is give you an anthropological evaluation. And the way I want to do that is uh, give you an MBTI, Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Assessment of your personality. So then we want to put you through a sociological, sociology, perspective I'd like to hear your family background where you come from and your your uh, the side of, of where you've been developed at whether you've been primarily come from blue collar background white collar background your family history as much as you want to share and uh, get an assessment based off that then we want to put you into uh, something called dynamo and dynamo is going to be four things that you've enjoyed in your life doing that you were good at and that other people affirmed you in and said, you know what, you're really good at that. And what we want to draw out of the dynamo section is to help you uh, define through like a sentence, this is what, this is who I am, this is what I enjoy, and this is what other people recognize, I am this one word or phrase, and we'll help you define that. Then we'll put you through soterio, which it comes from soteriological, soteriology, and it deals with your salvation 
and healing. Now, I mean, for someone who wasn't saved at this point, uh, we would want to uh, lead them to Christ. If you were saved and let's say you weren't filled with the Holy Spirit, we want to invite you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you were saved, filled with the Holy Spirit and you're growing in your relationship with the Holy Spirit, we want to give you a spiritual gifts test. And we want to find out how are you gifted by the Lord in the spiritual gifts that have been handed out as it says in Corinthians, severally as he will. We can help you to discover that and then further like to take you into something called Cosmo or Cosmology and help you to understand and see that if you've grown into the Lord enough to have a tribal distinction within the 12 or 13 tribes that were in the camps, because what I've come to find out with certain people is they've developed along the lines and the Holy Spirit has helped identify a particular tribe that they more identify with or a tri- particular tribal motif within a family. Like, for instance, yeah, I'm more Eastern camp Judah Iskar Zebulun related or someone else and I relate to that lion or I'm more Levitical and I relate to the center of the camp and worship and prayer and pastoral gifting or, or another person may say, no, I'm, I'm like the eagle. I'm Dan Asher Naftali and I, I kind of relate with that and to help you understand something because the cosmologically, this is in something called the Maseroth where it's the 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 major constellations and the minor constellations and there's some really good material in the body of Christ that we can help bring in with that to help you to have a even a more thorough understanding of yourself not just soteriologically but also cosmologically uh, bringing heaven to earth and so we'd put you through that and then you would be given an evaluation at that point you would be given the opportunity to say you know I think that I'd like to volunteer here uh, within the collider. And if you would like that, what we would like to do is help you to, what I would want to do is put you through uh, our uh, course, which is going to be called Phase O, uh, Final Frontier Training. And you would come into that discipleship tool and training that we're writing the curriculum on and getting ready for right now. And so you would come in and onboard into that program. Again, it's voluntary. And that if you wanted to go on, you would then be placed within, based off of this evaluation that has been done, one of our three developmental places. Um, one would be either our program development, um, which will involve like policy procedures, writing, publishing, R&D analysis, and things like that. Or it'd be placed in a pastoral volunteer section, which will involve our all the pastoral departments, or you'd be placed into an executive staff voluntary position and you would uh, come into that, you know, like admin or construction, media tech, you know, uh, public relations, financial accounting. And so we'd work you through the chrysalis. Uh, At that point, we would want you to volunteer to come in through the 12 phases of development called the galactic progeny and you would be brought into the first phase uh, and you would be developed, and primarily the galactic progeny, the whole program uh, developmental process, is to help you develop godly character and your relationship with the Father for the purpose of hearing and seeing. And uh, this would be, this is how the chrysalis will function, and this is what it would be used for. And so again, it's all voluntary. You know, at every stage of, the, uh, of this, it's voluntary for you to come in, your 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 evaluation uh, that's given to you will be kept confidential, so that no one else can look at it unless you specify that someone needs to. And then you will be given different levels of of a uh, desire to volunteer. And so the the next one will be you'll need to go through phase O final frontier training. That'll help you to get the language, the understanding, and develop in in your life. And then you could come in to volunteer within our program pastoral executives.
reflect in the sky And our eyes have been on 